You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... There is clearly a strong desire among the majority of people in the region for a future that is one of peace. And that's one path. That's one future. The other future is an endless cycle of violence. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returns to the Middle East in an ongoing effort to prevent Israel's war against Hamas from regional contagion. We'll assess his efforts... After a controversial U.S. airstrike on Baghdad, Iraq prepares to close down the U.S. coalition's mission. Iraq is an important and valued partner. Our forces are there at the invitation of the government of Iraq to help train and advise in support of the defeat ISIS mission. We'll look at what that means for the rise of Islamic State. Then more bad news for Boeing as the U.S. airline regulator ordered the grounding of 171 Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets after part of one plane fell off during an Alaska Airlines flight. We'll be in Ecuador to examine the measures that the newly elected president is using to clamp down down on rising violence. We'll have a rifle through the papers, a roundup of the latest business news, and we'll get all the details on Hollywood's Golden Globes. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Russia has hit Ukraine with missiles supplied by North Korea for the first time during its invasion, a senior Kyiv official said, corroborating an earlier assertion by the US White House. Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed signed a law nullifying an agreement by the breakaway Somaliland region to grant Ethiopia access to the Red Sea in return for recognition as an independent nation. And Anders Berig Breivik, the far-right fanatic who killed 77 people in a bombing and shooting rampage in Norway in 2011, will ask a court today to end his isolation in prison, saying it violates his human rights. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the middle of a trip to the Middle East, where he's holding a series of consultations amid a resurgence in fears that the Israel-Hamas war will devolve into a larger regional conflict. This is Blinken's fourth trip to the Middle East since October the 7th and involves stops in Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the West Bank and Egypt. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, who's Deputy Director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. Julie, many thanks for coming back on the show. What's the readout from the trip so far? Well, good morning, Georgina. You know, this is a the fourth trip for Antony Blinken, a massive shuttle diplomacy effort, as you listed, all the countries that are being visited. And he's right in the middle of it right now. And I'd say there's three main aims. The first is to simply de-escalate what could very quickly become a regional conflict. We've been saying that since day one. I think things hit a new level last week with the assassination of a um, uh, Hamas political um, uh, official in Beirut. The second area is, of course, just the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. I think we'll hear a lot more about that when Blinken gets to Israel. And third is what happens the day after 
the war ends, this idea of who is going to be involved in the reconstruction, what will long-term solutions look like, and really trying to work with regional partners around that. Um, you know, Blinken, I think, has had mixed success in the past and will probably have mixed success on this trip. But he does see diplomacy and the U.S. sees diplomacy as especially crucial at this moment. Well, let's pick up on what you were saying about aid, because we know he visited a World Food Programme aid warehouse in Jordan. Uh, has he been specific about getting essential supplies into Gaza? Sure. So this has been an area of focus for the U.S., again, from from very early on in the conflict. And there has been some movement. We currently have around 120 aid trucks getting into the Gaza Strip through two different crossings now per day. But that's way short of what's needed. You know, before everything started in October, Georgina, about 500 trucks going in every day. And even that was really supplying just the bare minimum. So I think Blinken is really trying to work not only with uh, aid groups who are very ready and, and willing with the aid, but really with Israel to try and get more aid approved to going in on a daily basis. How is he trying to mitigate the fallout from the, uh, the, the assassination in, uh, in Lebanon? Yeah, so this was obviously um, a, a quite a, a crucial moment in terms of shifting the conflict not only from Gaza, but to an operation in Lebanon, where there's already been, you know, very extensive cross-border fire with Hezbollah and Israel. So that has been the real question from the very start. Of this is how much Hezbollah would get involved, how much they would escalate on that border. Um, right now, again, there has been an increase in the cross-border um, attacks there in both directions. But I think Blinken is really trying to keep that limited. And he's trying to do that by working across borders with other states that also have communications with Hezbollah and also with the Lebanese government to try and keep that contained as much as possible. And what about working with the EU? Because we know that Joseph Borrell, the EU's most senior diplomat and Blinken's direct counterpart, is also touring the Middle East at the moment. I wonder how joined up the thinking between the two, between the US and Europe is, and if they share the same aims. And indeed, if their shuttle diplomacy is having any effect on the ground. Yeah, Georgina, all good questions. You know, I would say the um, U.S. position itself, I think, is has changed over the course of the conflict. A lot of the messaging we've seen from Blinken has shifted over time. You know, the EU as well, I think, started out in a very kind of moderate position. We're now hearing more forceful language about um, about trying to get to some real resolutions and trying to push back on some of the more provocative statements that we've heard from some Israeli politicians in particular in recent days. I do think there will be increasing kind between them, especially, again, as we said, all actors start looking towards what happens after the, the war ends, how will allies come together, how will partners come together after this. So as we see those efforts converge, what they actually mean on the ground, I think, are still yet to be seen. Again, the U.S. and allies have had some success, not only on aid, but also on the first um, hostage deal, the first pause, also on initially de-escalating the Lebanese border. Um, but as the war continues, it's going to be harder and harder to keep many partners on board with um, with being involved afterwards or with, um, you know, with, with, with real public diplomacy in the meantime. I mean, there is a sense that the uh, efforts to free the hostages have stalled simply because Gaza is under so much fire, it's doubtful whether many of them are still left alive. Is the US still working actively on hostage release? 
Absolutely. So I would say really since the second pause, this has been a major area of focus. There has still been um, ongoing negotiations. I think a lot of those were on track. I think the um, assassination in Beirut last week did um, pause those, if not derail them for the moment. And it's going to take a little while to get those back on track. But those conversations and negotiations are still very much uh, happening. Now, some analysts say that one phone call from Biden could stop Israel's attacks on Gaza. Do you think that really is the case? How much influence does the US have? And surely it's it's in Netanyahu's interest, personal interests, uh, to keep it going for as long as possible. Yeah, so I think there's often an overestimation of how much leverage uh, something like a Biden phone call or something like a statement from the U.S. can make. In reality, the administration has made many pleas to Israel um, in terms of how the war is, is is conducted, in terms of the amount of aid, in terms of what things look like afterwards. Um, and a lot of those have simply been been brushed off. And Israel has said, "Look, this is our war. We, you know, the U.S. is our ally, but it's not our directive." With that said, there are more tangible things that the U.S can do that are not being considered in terms of um, you know, reducing aid to Israel, in terms of some of the more um, tangible things that are simply just not on the table for this administration right now. And do you think that US and Israel interests align when it comes to the day after plans for Gaza? Well, it's been very difficult to get a read from Israel on what plans might look like uh, if there are any if there's any consensus at all. We've heard very um, uh, uh, provocative language over the last week um, from some ministers in Israel that suggests um, a willingness to displace Gazans over the Egyptian border and elsewhere. That's something that Israel says is not their official position. The U.S. has been very vocal since those comments, uh, especially in Blinken's diplomacy this week, to say that is something that you. US is not um, is not behind at all and is, is indeed pushing extremely hard against that this would not take place any kind of forced displacement over the border um, so with that one parameter there it's uh, unclear what and how Gaza can rebuild after this and that's one of the main aims for Blinken right now with especially with Arab partners in the region and with Turkey to try and see what that reconstruction effort might look like and how aligned are Arab partners I mean will they are they considering taking an active part in what happens when the war ends. Well, Georgina, as long as the war is still continuing, and especially at the intensity that it is, most partners are reluctant to be publicly, um, you know, on the record supporting that. They're saying, look, we want an end to the war. We want a ceasefire before we start talking about any kinds of, uh, um, you know, day after kind of situations, and especially something that would look like going in and, uh, you know, further disenfranchising uh, Gazans, um, especially something that looks like it's being coordinated with the U.S. and Israel at this moment that is still so extremely tense. And we get the sense from within Israel that Netanyahu is certainly not very popular. A lot of people want him to go. There have been various demonstrations. Is the US supporting the man himself or is it just the war? Well, I would say right now, at least for Blinken and the diplomacy efforts, those are very much focused on the war and not so much on the domestic politics within Israel and, uh, you know, backing any individual over another. Um, you know, Blinken or Biden and Netanyahu do have a pretty long-standing relationship, and it's one that I think Biden has tried to lean into throughout this crisis. Um, but at the end of the day, the U.S. is not going to want to seem to be publicly involved um, in, in Israeli politics and will focus their diplomacy on what's happening Mm. Now, if the primary aim of the US is to prevent regional contagion, which we believe it is, why did it launch attacks on Iran-backed militias in Iraq last week? 
Yeah, so this is another area where there has been concern about the conflict just escalating outside of outside control. Um, and that has been the Iran's proxy groups throughout the region, in the Red Sea, in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, there have been uh, attacks by um, proxy groups against the U.S. and Iraq before. Those have indeed escalated significantly since this conflict started. And the U.S. has wanted to send a signal back that that won't be tolerated. Um, with that said, I think the U.S. is trying to avoid any kind of direct conflict with Iran itself um, and is really trying to have any actions be clearly for self-defense against attacks on their troops who are there um, by the invitation of Iraq to um, to essentially uh, work on counter-ISIS operations in that country. Julie, thank you very much indeed. That's Julie Norman there. And this is The Globalist. Twelve minutes past ten in Mosul, that's 7.12 here in London. Now, as we've just been hearing, the US killed a militia leader in Baghdad on Thursday. The United States has 2,500 troops in Iraq on a mission. It says uh, aims to advise and assist local forces trying to prevent a resurgence of Islamic State. But now the Iraqi government is beginning the process to remove the US-led international military coalition from the country. Well, I'm joined by Middle East correspondent Lizzie Porter, who's in Jerusalem at the moment, but reports extensively from Iraq. Lizzie, many thanks for, for joining us. Now, Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani said about, uh, what is he said about the withdrawal of coalition troops? Morning. So he came out, his office came out with a statement on Friday and said that the government is, and it's a bit of a convoluted statement, it's, it's, it's quite caged. It says that the, the government is setting the date for the start of the bilateral committee to put arrangements to end the presence of the coalition forces. So that's quite, it's quite caged, it's quite careful. Um, it's not necessarily saying we, they are, you know, leaving tomorrow. Um, I asked the Department of Defense about this in America, and they said that this was part of the sort of an ongoing strategic dialogue that the US and Iraq have, which made a commitment back in the summer last year um, to form this committee to evaluate the mission and the presence. Um, yeah. So, so, and he said he couldn't speculate further on the current discussions, but, or on a timeline, but it seems that they've sort of formed or are in the process of forming a, a committee to think about the end of the presence of the coalition in Iraq. So we know that Sudani needed the support of the Iran-backed factions to win power a year ago, and they now do form a powerful bloc in his governing coalition. I wonder how right. much control he has over them. Will this move have been driven by them? Yeah, I mean, he. I think he has limited control over some of them is the answer. Um, you know, the, the the US are saying that this is not about appeasing those blocks, these announcements coming now following the US strikes on powerful, uh, you know, paramilitary groups in Iraq who are attacking the US forces. But I mean, if you look at the timing, it is very close to this series of what the US says is self-defense strikes on these militant groups in Iraq, which would suggest that he is trying to, um, you know, say, say, you know, look, I'm doing something about the presence of the Americans, which you are not happy about. But we know that these strikes have been going on since since o October, and, and um, they do. He 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 does not necessarily have full control over this. I mean, 
in Iraq, historically, uh, the monopoly of the states on the force of arms has not existed. And I think this is another example of that, that there are so many militant groups in Iraq that the prime minister, although he is technically the commander in chief of the armed forces, does not have control over uh, groups that are paramilitaries. Mm. Now, should all coalition troops leave, does it leave the way clear for a resurgence of Islamic State? We know they claimed responsibility last week for two explosions in Iran that killed nearly 100 people and and wounded scores more. Could we see them strengthening? Indeed, is that a, a sign that they already have? So, I mean, I can't really say whether they should leave or not. The Iraqis say we, uh, some Iraqis say we don't need the coalition forces. Others say, no, look, they are assisting and advising us in planning operations against the Islamic State to to sweep up the or, or to mop up pockets of Islamic State that exist in Iraq. I think it's true that Islamic State does not pose uh, a threat to to you know, to to take territory like it did, but it still carries out operations in rural parts of Iraq. You know, there's been periods in the not distant past, they've killed, you know, they killed tens of members of the security forces in one go. And that is a sign that they still do have some power and that the Iraqi uh, security forces do have a kind of a need to, for the continued presence of the assistant advise mission uh, to plan operations against uh, against these pockets of uh, Islamic State. Mm. What would you say the legacy of the US-led coalition in Iraq is? They've definitely so the security forces in Iraq have definitely strengthened over the past, um, you know, the, over the past sort of uh, period since 2014 when the when the coalition has arrived. I think there's still this feeling that the Americans don't really necessarily care about us and they could leave at any point. Mm. Um, There's not necessarily a full trust in uh, US-led forces operations. On the other hand, a lot of, you know, forces that I speak to in Iraq, they really like them. They really enjoy working with international forces. They like the professionalism and the discipline that there is. And of course, there are also troops left in Syria, about 900 troops in Syria. Uh, Will this decision, indeed, if it goes ahead, uh, affect those personnel too? So if the coalition pulls out of Iraq, it's, it's one mission in Iraq and Syria. It would have an effect on the ones in Syria because they need the presence in the north of Iraq, in the Kurdistan region, to supply the or, or to facilitate the mission in Syria. So it definitely would as well there. And in Syria, there is also, you know, significant threat of ISIS resurgence. Plus, you've got issues between uh, areas of control in, Tur- in Syria. So uh, Turkey, Russia, the Syrian regime is there. And, um, you know, Pulling out of Syria would lessen the international coalition's influence over what is still a very fractured nation. Plus the Al-Hol camp, which is housing tens of thousands of uh, ISIS-linked families um, that it has been frequently described as a time bomb. Uh, not having the international coalition there would decrease the visibility over this a really, really destable area of, um, of, of this really, really, um, you know, um, volatile place 
in northeast Syria. Mm. Uh, and and just finally, I wonder if the troop withdrawal, if it happens, will have any impact on the, on the conflict in Israel and Gaza. I mean, I think the fact it would show that the US is withdrawing from the region and the West is withdrawing from the region and that could be, you know, construed as, well, the West doesn't necessarily care about uh, the region. And we don't forget that the attacks that have been taking place since October 7th have been directly linked by the militant groups in Iraq to the conflict in Gaza and saying, look, we need to do this because the Americans are supporting Israel. So a withdrawal would be, I think, seen as uh, another kind of uh, disengagement from the region by the West, which could lead to further, you know, I mean, I don't think it would necessarily have a direct impact on Israel and Gaza, but it would be seen as a further withdrawal by the West uh, and therefore potentially give room to uh, Iran-backed groups to to push forward and, and trying to increase their influence over Iraq. Lizzie, thank you very much indeed. That's Lizzie Porter there. Now, still to come on the programme, we catch up on last night's Golden Globes Awards. The only time I've ever been on the stage before was accepting one of these on behalf of our dear friend Heath Ledger. And I thought it'd be simpler uh, accepting for myself, but as a director, of course, as I stand here, I suddenly realise I can only accept this on behalf of, of people. More to come with Laura Kramer a little bit further on in the show. But first, US regulators have ordered the temporary grounding of 177 Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft after a cabin panel blew out of a plane mid-flight. The Alaska Airlines flight was forced to make an emergency landing shortly after taking off from Portland, Oregon on Friday, with footage showing a gaping hole in the side of the plane next to passenger seats. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs sent us this report. Report. A few announcements as we begin our flight. To be safe, we recommend your seatbelt stays fastened whenever you're in your seat, just in case there is unexpected turbulence. If ever there were a reason to pay attention to the pre-flight safety briefing, it came on Friday evening for the 171 passengers aboard an Alaska Airlines flight from Portland, Oregon to Ontario, California. As the Boeing 737 MAX 9 reached an altitude of 16,000 feet, a door blew out of the fuselage next to an empty seat. Sudden cabin depressurization sucked cell phones and headphones into the ether and even ripped the shirt off a teenage boy. Oxygen masks deployed and the pilot made an emergency landing at Portland International Airport just 20 minutes after takeoff. All passengers and crew made it off the plane safely with no major injuries. One passenger told the Oregonian newspaper it was, quote, deathly silent during the descent. Others reportedly held hands and said prayers. The airline offered to rebook passengers on a different aircraft. Some declined to fly at all. The door in question was non-operable on the Alaska Airlines plane. Some low-cost carriers, like Ryanair, configure the MAX 9 with additional seats and use the door as an emergency exit. But for travelers on most airlines, the outline of the door is not even visible from inside the cabin, where it is permanently plugged shut. Or at least, it's supposed to be. As a result of the incident, over the weekend, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 9s for inspection, which affected some 171 flights, mostly on Alaska and United Airlines. 
Panama's flagship carrier, Copa Airlines, as well as Aeromexico, grounded another 40 MAX 9s. The aircraft is less common in Europe, though it does fly for both Turkish Airlines and Iceland Air. The troubling incident is another blow for Boeing's 737 MAX, its signature narrow-body jet. The MAX 8 suffered deadly crashes in 2018 and 19, which led to a worldwide grounding of the popular airplane for nearly two years. Boeing has delivered 218 MAX 9s worldwide thus far. The aircraft involved in Friday's incident was nearly brand new. It entered service for Alaska at the end of October. The airline, which is based in Boeing's birthplace of Seattle, proudly touts its all-Boeing fleet as a selling point. The bad news for Boeing comes as its wide-body program has been flying high. In November, Boeing soared at the Dubai Air Show with almost three times as many orders as its rival Airbus. However, Friday's incident brought Boeing's reputation crashing back down to earth. While the door blowout caught the aerospace giant and aviation regulators alike off guard, as recently as late December, Boeing alerted the FAA of a possible loose bolt in the MAX's rudder control system, requiring yet more safety inspections of the troubled aircraft. For Monocle in Seattle, I'm Gregory Scruggs. Thanks, Gregory. And we can add to that report that investigators say that the missing door plug has been found in the Portland yard of a school teacher called Bob. Some 171 Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes remain grounded as safety checks continue. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Phil Clark. Good morning to you, Phil. Good morning, Georgina. I love that all everyone's reporting just that the school teacher's called Bob. It's excellent. He doesn't have a surname, um, but he's, he's now an international figure of infamy. <laughs> And I wonder about that, that thought process. You're in your yard and you think, what is that? And he's got camera crews on, on his doorstep for the next week, I think. So I, I hope he milks it for all it's worth. Oh, dear. Let's go to this story, which is widely reported. It's about the US Defence Secretary. He's actually in intensive care and nobody knew. Indeed, this is a, a remarkable story, I think, Georgina, about Lloyd Austin, uh, the, the US Secretary of Defence, who was in intensive care for 11 days, so from the 22nd of December until the 2nd of January, but nobody knew, including his closest colleagues, and certainly President Biden didn't know about this. It's quite remarkable that you've got one of the most senior um, military policymakers in the US um, out of action, given how much activity there was um, around the US military over the Christmas and New Year period, not least uh, the US airstrike on Baghdad uh, just a week or so ago, which killed an uh, Iranian-backed militia leader in Baghdad. Um, So this is a, a really serious situation. 
situation um, with such a senior official uh, really gone AWOL um, during this this crucial period and, and the fact that nobody seemed to know. I guess it's tapping into a lot of this pre-election uh, discussion around Biden, that he's asleep at the wheel, that he's someone who's really not in charge. He's got one of his most senior officials um, who's who's not available at this critical time and he didn't know about it. So the, the story's about Lloyd Austin, but it's clearly much bigger than that. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to Africa now, which we know is your uh, USP, if you like. Um, we've been reporting on the pact between Ethiopia and Somaliland with uh, this <laughs> deal to grant Ethiopia access to the Somaliland port in exchange for recognition. Somalia now has taken great exception to this and in fact even passed a law nullifying it. Indeed, this happened um, very late on Friday and this is being reported in the East African newspaper that uh, that Somalia has now passed this law trying to nullify the Ethiopia-Somaliland deal. Now, of course, that's a, a, a law that won't have very much effect because this is a, a deal between Ethiopia and Somaliland and it looks like that's going to, to go ahead. But I think it, it shows how quickly the situation is escalating uh, in the Horn of Africa. There were big protests in Mogadishu last week uh, about the Ethiopian deal. The big fear of the Somali government is that Ethiopia may become the first state to recognise Somaliland as an independent country. This is something that Somalia has been trying to thwart um, really for the last 20 years or so. There's also an ongoing peace process between Somalia and Somaliland um, that, that's being uh, mediated in Doha, so that there's quite a complicated political backdrop to this. Um, but of course, this is also happening in a part of Africa <coughs> which, which is of interest to um, most of the powerful states in the region, the UAE, Qatar, Turkey, all have military bases in this particular part of Somaliland and in Djibouti. So it's a it's a big deal uh, regarding the relationship between Somalia and Somaliland, but, it, but it's very much a, a regional tension too. Mm. Uh, let's move on to the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which is not being very democratic at the moment. <laughs> no, and, and this is, I guess, the running story of, of the embattled uh, Congolese elections. Um, it, it, this has been, even by Congolese standards, one of the worst run elections uh, that you could imagine. And there are big protests uh, right across the country over the last week. Um, many, many uh, opposition figures and opposition supporters calling for the entire election uh, to be rerun because of, of how badly it was organised. The, the, over the weekend, the Congolese Electoral Commission annulled the ballots of 82 parliamentary candidates. This wasn't just a presidential election, it was a parliamentary election as well. They've annulled the vote for three government ministers and four provincial governors. So very senior figures are are now having their place in in the Congolese parliament annulled. But I think what's going on here is that the Electoral Commission has cherry-picked a handful of prominent politicians who over time have been opposed to President Shishiketi and has basically thrown them under the bus. They're doing this to try to show their independence because they're also trying to avoid having to rerun the entire election. Um, so this this looks like an attempt to tackle fraud and to tackle corruption in the process, uh, but actually I think it's an attempt to, to avoid the much bigger issue of fraud uh, around the election as a whole. Mm. Uh, and finally, let's have a look at what, <laughs> what the Canberra police chief has called a subspecies of the human race. 
face. I thought we we absolutely needed a little bit of an Australian political culture on the show this morning. Uh, this is a story in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, around a big car festival which happens uh, in the nation's capital, Canberra, uh, every year. 130,000 people descend on the Australian Capital Territory um, for a, a huge kind of car show, a big car competition. One of the centrepieces of this is a burnout competition where people come and do donuts in huge car parks. You're looking at me, Georgina, like this can't possibly happen, <laughs> but apparently this is a big deal in the uh, the Australian sporting ca- uh, calendar. I must confess it was news to me until I saw it on the front page of most of the Aussie papers um, this morning. But it's this festival has really gotten out of hand. So there were rocks thrown at police. There were big brawls breaking out. Apparently, Summonat uh, turned into, uh, into a bit of a bloodbath on the weekend. I, I think the reason I wanted to highlight this story is that we've got some in- remarkable quotes um, from the acting police inspector of Canberra, Mark Richardson, who said that the real car enthusiasts were not the problem, but rather the moron tourism that we get. If we set up an IQ station at the border instead of a vehicle testing station, we'd halve our problems. And then he talks about the the brawlers as being uh, subspecies. The problem, I think, for him is that this is the biggest tourism event that Canberra has any year. Canberra's a very sleepy town. This is probably the most important event uh, for people descending on the Australian Capital Territory, but uh, we may see a slightly smaller crowd next year after the the police inspector's comments. Phil Clark, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russia has hit Ukraine with missiles supplied by North Korea for the first time during its invasion, a senior Kyiv official said, corroborating an earlier assertion by the US. North Korea has been under a United Nations arms embargo since it first tested a nuclear bomb in 2006, and a UN Security Council resolution approved with Russian support bans countries from trading weapons or other military equipment with North Korea. Somalia's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, signed a law nullifying an agreement by the breakaway Somaliland region to grant Ethiopia access to the Red Sea in return for recognition as an independent nation. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's stated ambition to secure access to the Red Sea is a source of tension between the Horn of Africa nation and its neighbours and has raised concerns of a fresh conflict in the region. And Anders Berig Breivik, the far-right fanatic who killed 77 people in a bombing and shooting rampage in Norway in 2011, will today ask a court to end his isolation in prison, saying it violates his human rights. Control over Breivik's contacts with the outside world is justified by the risk that it will inspire others to commit violent acts, the lawyers argue. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, Bangladesh, a nation of 170 million people, voted in an election yesterday, widely seen as a sham. 52 years after independence, politics in the world's eighth most populous country has long been dominated by the rivalry between Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, the daughter of the country's founding leader, and two-time Premier Khaled Azir, wife of a former military ruler. The previous elections of 2014 and 18 were marred by allegations of irregularities. Well, joining me now from Berlin is a doctoral researcher in international relations at the University of Oxford. That's Ishrat Hussain. Ishrat, many thanks for for coming on the show. I wonder if you could start by describing the political landscape in Bangladesh. Thank you, Georgiana, uh, for having me on the show. Uh, So the current political landscape, as you have just mentioned, is, is marred by 
this rivalry between uh, the two political parties. And as you have also mentioned that we have seen an election um, yesterday where the Awami League has won three quarters of all the seats and the rest of the seats um, have been um, have been gone to their their allies. However, the voter turnout has remained very low and throughout uh, this election, um, uh, there has been discrepancies uh, of, of the figures that were given uh, regarding voter turnout. Mm. And uh, this election has also been boycotted by the opposition and um, they wanted to achieve, um, uh, what they wanted to achieve from this boycott was to reduce the credibility of the election and the legitimacy of the income, incoming government. So the overall political landscape is now um, that is of Bangladesh increasingly becoming what, what uh, scholars call um, a moderate autocracy. And um, this has been the trajectory for the last um, decade under Sheikh Hasina's rule. And we, we uh, can say that there has been a cons further consolidation of our, of our power um, through this, this latest election. Mm. Now, there were many protests and arrests leading up to this election, including that of the prominent uh, Nobel Prize winner, Mohammed Yunus, the prominent microfinancier. Can you tell us more about that? Um, yes, so there were two large-scale protests that broke out in the lead-up to the election. The first was done by the opposition uh, party, the BNP, who were leading the protest calling for the resignation of the prime minister and demanding that the elections to be held under a neutral caretaker government, uh, which has been the, the, the trend in Bangladesh for uh, before um, Awami League took power in 2008. However, um, um, this demand was uh, rejected by the government um, and uh, the, the protests were uh, uh, peaceful, um, which uh, started in the beginning of last year, and and but it shifted uh, on the on, in October of last year when one of the mass um, rallies uh, was forcefully dispersed by the government through uh, through the help of uh, law enforcing agencies and its um, its political um, activists. So since October of last year, there there has been um, mass arrests of um, opposition political leaders and activists, around 20,000 people were arrested. And the government has used the, the judiciary to, to convict around 1,200 of opposition leaders. Um, so we, we have seen that the protests have turned very, very um, violent and also difficult for the opposition. Mm. Um, so apart from that, the second protest that we have also seen was that um, done by the by the garment um, workers who were demanding higher wages, and this protest also um, happened last year in November, and the government um, actually used similar tactics to um, to repress uh, that protest that uh, uh, that the garment uh, workers were were carrying out. So these were the large. Uh, two large protests that we have seen um, in the lead up to the election. Mm. Now, of course, everything that's going on is problematic uh, within the country, but it also has ramifications outside. And I wonder if you could tell us more about uh, the, the strategic interests of perhaps the United States and Russia, uh, the China's Belt and Road vision, India's buffer state priorities. Mm. All of these are very bound up with what happens in Bangladesh. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, as it stands now, uh, there is a clear divergence 
in how Western democracy, uh, Western democracies and regional powers like China, India and Russia have positioned themselves vis-a-vis -vis Bangladesh. So for the last one decade, um, the regional powers, uh, especially India and China, have given legitimacy to, to Sheikh Hasina's rule uh, by standing with her after each controversial election. Uh, they have also been a very important financiers to some of the uh, mega infrastructure projects that ba Bangladesh has has uh, started, which were um, really ambitious and and also hugely expensive. Um, and um, Hasina government's um, track record of development um, and modernizations are kind of linked to this this mega project mm. um, on the other hand uh western democracies like the the us and eu eu um, are are the largest buyer of bangladeshi garment product and they have been increasingly critical over bangladesh's democratic erosion human rights abuses and and labor conditions um so these these are the divergences that we have seen in bangladesh's foreign policy where um, the regional powers have supported the Hasina government, overlooking um, uh, the, the democratic, uh, falling democratic standards, whereas um, the, the Western powers have been more critical. So going forward, we will have to see how the latest election and a, a consecutive fourth term of Hasina in power shapes these this foreign relations and what are the implications that Bangladesh may face, especially from, from Western democracies as a result of, of, of this. Ishrat, thank you very much indeed. That was Ishrat Hossein, who's a doctoral researcher in international relations at the University of Oxford. You're with Monocle Radio. It is 2.40 in Quito, that's 8.40 in Zurich. Violence has exploded in Ecuador in recent years as enemy gangs with links to Mexican and Colombian cartels vie for control. The murder rate quadrupled between 2018 and 2022, with last year the most violent on record, a total of 7,500 homicides in a country of about 18 million people. But the newly elected president, Daniel Noboa, has announced plans to clamp down. Well, I'm joined now down the line by Lewis Harris, Harrison, who is Andean Region Editor at Latin News. Lewis, many thanks for joining us. I wonder if you could tell us more about the security problems in Ecuador and why they've increased recently. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, so Ecuador has, over the space of just four or five years, gone from being one of the most peaceful countries in Latin America to one of the most violent. Um, as you mentioned, this is mainly due to outside influences. Um, Ecuador's always been a sort of conduit for cocaine being smuggled from Colombia onwards to North America and Europe. Um, but what we're seeing now is with a fragmentation of criminal groups in southwestern Colombia, just over the border, we've got different Colombian cartels supplying cocaine to different groups within Ecuador who are supplying onwards to different drug cartels within Mexico. And of course, you're seeing Colombian and Mexican um, crime groups trying to protect their shipments through Ecuador uh, through local gangs. Mm. Um, and that's really what's driven this eruption in violence. So Naboa has proposed a referendum. What's the detail on that? Yes. So um, the referendum um, asks 11 questions of voters. Um, probably the most important asks whether they support deploying the military 
um, on a permanent basis against um, organized crime groups. Um, at the moment, to deploy the military, the government needs to declare the state of emergency. Um, you know, this can only run for a limited period of time. What Nabella wants to do is basically change the military and put it on a, a permanent footing against drug trafficking. Um, this could involve military checkpoints around the country. It could um, enable sort of military teams to, to back up police when they go into, into violent neighbourhoods, for example. Um, it's also proposing a few other measures. He wants to toughen prison sentences for quite a long list of crimes. Um, and he wants to root out corruption in the justice system. Um, he wants judges to have to submit to a, a financial audit. Um, this after a major corruption scandal last year when judges and prosecutors were found to be taking bribes from, from drug groups. Mm. I, I mean, he has a fairly recent mandate. He was only elected in November. Why is he putting this decision to the public? Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's probably two main reasons for that. Firstly, is that Noboa's predecessor, Guillermo Lasso, was, um, was forced from office by Congress um, just last year after a long period of gridlock where Congress was blocking all of his main reforms. And um, Ecuador is, is, is a politically unstable country. And I think Noboa is thinking that he could maybe avoid that fate by going over the heads of Congress and, um, and appealing directly to voters on, on what is repeatedly identified as the issue of most concern to them, which is security. Um, this has been controversial. Even his own allies have been saying that the, the proposal should be discussed by legislators. Um, but the other main factor is that uh, Nabo is against the clock because he's only serving out the remainder of Lasso's term, um, which means that elections are next year, early next year. So he's only got a little over a year to make an impact on um, on crime. Mm. Now, we've just had news uh, in of the escape of the country's most wanted prisoner, who's the leader of a, a criminal gang. He's apparently disappeared from jail. I wonder what that tells us really about the state of the prisons and the power of criminal gangs and what will be done to change that? Yes. So um, news broke out just overnight that um, Macias Salazar, also known as Fito, has escaped from prison. He's the leader of one of the country's two main criminal gangs, Los Joneros, and he was serving a 34-year sentence for drug trafficking and murder. So his, his escape is obviously embarrassing for the Navarro administration just after it took office. But I think it really highlights just the depth of a crisis in the prison system because um, prisons are intensely overcrowded and they've long acted as not only recruitment hubs for gangs, but also um, sort of an operational HQ. Um, a lot of the gang leadership as with Fito's cases, is behind bars and is operating fairly freely from within prison, coordinating their activities. Um, and this has been the main cause of repeated prison massacres over the last few years, with gangs trying to take out their rivals from within prison walls. Um, Naboa has said that this will be a sort of central thrust of his, his crime strategy. Um, just last week, he announced that he's going to build two new maximum security prisons. He's also floated ideas like um, prison ships where he wants to put the country's most dangerous inmates on sort of prison boats offshore to, to fully isolate them. Uh, and, and just finally, how popular is Naboa? Can he turn things around in Ecuador? Um, oh, I mean, it's early to say, but really, and he's only been in, in power for, for six weeks, but um, he, he's facing a serious hill that he's got to climb. He, he's not only the security situation, which is still dramatically deteriorating, but he's also teetering on the bridge of quite a big financial hole. Um, just the day after he took office, um, Naboa's finance minister took to the airwaves and said that there was only $100 million in the government accounts. Um, he warned that 
um, you know, the country is, is possibly going to have to default on its debts unless it can turn things around. Um, so those are the two main challenges, and they're, they're both very serious. Naboa's made some progress. He, he's announced plans for this referendum, and he's also passed a tax reform um, late last year. So he's made, um, yeah, some early progress on, on the two main issues, but he's really, as I said, he's up against the clock, and, and the challenges are, are very severe. Lewis, thank you very much indeed. That was the Andean editor of Latin News, Lewis Harrison. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time now to talk business with Isabel Hamilton. Isabel, good morning to you. In the last, well, in fact, since the pandemic, we've been seeing repeated stories about the popularity of podcasts and audio media. However, uh, there's a story here telling us that that may not really be the case. Yeah, well, this is a story about uh, a radio giant in the US called Odyssey, which has filed for bankruptcy, um, which is maybe not a huge surprise given it's primarily a radio station. And, you know, radio is seen as a very rapidly ageing sort of um, legacy media. But this company did invest a lot in podcasts and that doesn't seem to be enough to be a sort of life raft. And this is sort of a trend we're seeing across multiple companies. For example, Spotify tried to invest really heavily in podcasts and now it's seeing a really heavy financial crunch. Um, They don't seem to be as lucrative as people hoped. Uh, but, I mean, the, the media is certainly not dead. You're talking on it right now. No, absolutely. <laughs> this is a very, very um, traditional radio station. Uh, well, sorry, radio conglomerate, I should say. Yeah. Um, and it's not. It's, it's by no means dead. It is declaring bankruptcy, but it's going to restructure. It's going to strike a new deal with its creditors. Um, there was a similar, very large company called iHeartMedia that did something very similar in 2018, and that is not quite extinct. Right. Let's go to the FT now, uh, uh, which reports that cloud giants offer only limited protection to businesses over AI copyright claims. Tell us more about this. Yeah. So with generative AI becoming more and more widely used, lots of companies, including these cloud giants, the cloud giants, I should specify, are Amazon, Google, Microsoft primarily. They offer their customers some kind of legal shield. They say, you know, if someone were to sue you for using our tools, we would come in and protect you and bear the legal costs. What we're seeing now, though, is that as more and more of these companies make those promises, if you look at the fine print, the protection is actually really limited. And that's something that's really important because I think a lot of this industry will be defined by legal cases, by lawsuits brought. And so far, the lawsuits that have been brought have been on the sort of back end to do with the training data. But, you know, for them to make this a viable commercial tool, we're going to have to see what happens at the front end as well when people start making things and whether or not people then 
bring lawsuits against those products, not just what went into building the tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, uh, here in Britain, at least, people are not buying electric cars at the rate that one would have hoped. And that's mostly because the infrastructure does not exist to support it. But BT has a plan. Yeah, so I think this is quite a nice story. BT has got these old green sort of metal cabinets that you'll see on the street. Uh, and they are used to store like lots of cabling for things like broadband and landlines. And, they're, you know, they're approaching obsolescence. So BT is going to convert them into EV charging stations. There's about 60,000 of them, which is really neat because the UK, like you said, is behind on setting up EV charging stations. And that's like a really major problem in EV adoption in general, it's this chicken egg thing, you know, you want to buy an electric car, but you're not certain about, you know, if there'd be enough chargers for you. And then it's really hard to justify buying chargers for cities and near neighbourhoods, because you know, well, there's not enough people with EVs to justify doing it. Mm, but this could finally break the deadlock. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally, to the Golden Globes. After a terrible year for Hollywood with six months of strikes by actors and writers, Tinseltown partied once again. Known as a boozy celebration more relaxed than the Academy Awards, the Globes nearly disappeared in 2021 as a Los Angeles Times report revealed ethical lapses and a lack of diversity amongst the roughly 80 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. That's the the group that previously voted on the Globes. Well, the 2022 ceremony was scrapped altogether while the organisation made reforms. Sunday's turnout, though, showed Hollywood had re-embraced the Globes as a key stop on the awards campaign trail. Well, Monocle radio producer, entertainment correspondent, keen watcher of the Globes, who's had very little sleep, I imagine, tonight, last night, is Laura Kramer. She joins me now in the studio. Her Herculean effort, Laura. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Georgina. I had to pop on the false lashes to make sure you look <laughs> like human. Uh, before we get on to the big winners and losers, tell us a little bit about this restructure. What's changed? So Hollywood loves a comeback, Georgina, and how do you do that? With some nips and tucks is one of the go-tos they go to. And I think the Globes are trying to do the same thing. So the scandal over corruption and lack of diversity really threatened to be the end of the Golden Globes. And it's aiming for a fresh start. It's got new owners, a new network, a new host. We'll get to that more. And basically the new voting. And this is the crucial important part here, that the way that they're trying to face that backlash against the lack of diversity. So there is 300 members now voting. Now, that's up from some 90 members before in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. It was very secretive. And what we're seeing is that it's a very diverse crowd, which is not surprising. It's The basic premise is still there. You have to be a journalist writing for a media outlet outside the U.S. about entertainment. But now it is made up from representatives from 76 countries. More than 40%, um, almost 50% of them are female and 60% are racially and ethically diverse. So it's really trying to bring in a more diverse outlook and also the new owners which is Elridge Industries which acquired the event after the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was shut down. They're trying to have a more global outlook. They want this to be a global event and that's what the 
they're really aiming for. So that's kind of the background on the voting. Let's see how it's all gone down, though, shall we? Because those aren't just the first, the only first. We also have two new categories, actually, Georgina. And one of them is about uh, box office success. And guess who walked away with that? That is Barbie. Barbie walks away with that. It did so well. Here's Margot Robbie talking, uh, accepting the award for it. Thank you. We would like to dedicate this to every single person on the planet who dressed up and went to the greatest place on earth, the movie theaters. That's lovely. Margot Robbie, there was also a new category for stand-up. Ricky Gervais picked up that award, but he was not there. Now, I think we could maybe potentially jump to the winners, if that's all right with I you. I would love to know. Let's do that. Another first was actually the actress from Killers of the Flower Moon. That's Lily Gladstone. So she picked up the award. It is a historic win for her because she became the first Indigenous person to win a Golden Globe. And this, she took the award and she began uh, she began her speech by speaking in the Blackfoot language. She eventually switched to English and talked about how important it is to see representation of uh, Indigenous people on screen, and especially language, because she mentioned that back in the old days of Hollywood, they used to take English and play it backwards in order to make it sound like some sort of Indigenous language. <laughs> so it was really important for her to be up there and, and, and taking that award. And that was recognised, of course, particularly by Robert Downey Jr. That's right. Well, Robert Downey Jr. won the award for Oppenheimer, excuse me, and he he thanked the, uh, the new rules and the change for the Golden Globes. With Emily and Florence and this cast and crew and help them render a goddamn masterpiece. Now, Oppenheimer was the big winner. It took home some five awards, including the top prize. And now this is the exciting part for me is Succession, because I know we're both big fans. Absolutely. Georgina, I was so happy it won really big in the TV categories for its fourth and final season. One of those winners is Kieran Coakland, and he made a little bit of a joke at the award, sh- uh, at the award show, which went down very well, I thought. Suck it, Pedro. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mine. Um. <laughs> oh dear, that's wonderful. <laughs> he, yeah, he was making fun of Pedro Pascal also up in the category, but he was really great. So there was a new host. Who was that and how did he go down? Well, unfortunately, I have to say it did not go down very well. That was Joe, Joe Coy, and he said that he got the gig 10 days ago. But unfortunately, this was meant to be what we were told. It was going to be a celebration of coming back after a really tough time for Hollywood and, and the revamp of the Golden Globes. But he just kind of went down like a lead balloon. The jokes did not land well. Uh, I thought they were very lazy. I mean, jokes that we'd seen on, on X ages ago about Oppenheimer being too long and... and Uh, Taylor Swift being shown too much at NFL games because she's dating a player. Very boring, very lazy, did not. And it seemed like the audience visibly rebelled against him with their reactions. They did not like it. (laughs) And finally, there was a little bit of Taylor Swift gossip. Oh, yeah, that's right. So she was there because of the box office. And um, basically, we see Selena Gomez 
saying to Taylor Swift that Timothy Chalamet was not allowed to take a photo with her because of his girlfriend, Kylie Jenner. I can't unpack this further, Georgina, but I don't think we have the time. It was very juicy tea. Very juicy tea. And there are lots of great shots of that. And of course, of all of the starry guests. Exactly, exactly. There was Harrison Ford there, Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Lopez, and all the Jennifers, Jennifer Lawrence herself, who joked to the camera that if she doesn't win, she's leaving. Laura, thank you very much indeed. That's Laura Kramer there. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Vincent McAvinney, Chris Chermack and Isabella Jewell. Our researchers, Ninoma Ekwe and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and lots more programming and the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.